Before we turn to your essential political analysis for this week, I want to tell you about our wonderful partners at The Resident, where all rooms are designed to combine pure comfort with quintessential British style and design. Whether you're escaping to London for a romantic break or visiting the city with friends and family, there's no better place to stay in the heart of the neighbourhood. Without The Resident, you might not get to experience London. And without The Resident, we wouldn't be here on Whitehall Sources. Whitehall Sources, your essential, essential politics podcast, is brought to you in association with The Resident. to your professional colleagues. Do you think you contributed to a lack of effectiveness on the part of ministers and of the cabinet? No, I think I was reflecting a widespread view uh, amongst uh, competent people at the centre of power at the time about the calibre of a lot of senior people who were dealing with this crisis extremely badly. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. We're recording on Wednesday the 1st of November I can't believe it's November, actually. I'm Callum McDonald. Welcome to the podcast. And also here, Kirsty Buchanan, former special advisor to Theresa May when she was Prime Minister. Hello, Kirsty. Good morning to you. Hello, hello. Uh, right, this episode then is going to be devoted to the COVID inquiry because, like it or not, it has been quite a box office week this week. Um, I was perfectly glued to the television yesterday uh, as I was doing other things. But we had uh, two former advisors, Lee Kane and Dominic Cummings, uh, both giving evidence at the COVID inquiry. And before the end of the episode, you're going to hear from another witness, actually, to the COVID inquiry. We've got Alex Thomas with us from the Institute for Government. He's a programme director there. He was former, uh, prin- formerly a principal private secretary to the head of the civil service, um, now at the Institute for Government. And yes, he was, uh, he was a witness in this sort of phase of uh, the COVID inquiry. Uh, so we'll get to Alex in just a sec. Um, I suppose there's kind of an interesting thing here, Kirsty, that First of all, just on the just on the attention that the COVID inquiry gets, rightly or wrongly, when you've got people like Dominic Cummings, this these are the days that we all pay very close attention to it. Yeah, and look, rightly so. You know, uh, there are lots of expert witnesses throughout the inquiry that will be giving uh, their views and their analysis, but these are the people that were right at the heart of the decision making or as it turns out lack of decision making um well, you know yeah. these were these these were the people in the inner you know in Boris Johnson's inner circle so it's not just uh you know media personalities this is about you know listening to people who were actually in the room who worked more closely with Boris Johnson than anybody else um and can give real insight into what you know what why things were, you know were as dysfunctional as they were Mm. Just a bit of admin then before we get stuck into the COVID inquiry. You can email your own thoughts, your own analysis, your take on all that we're talking about. Perhaps it is the COVID inquiry uh, that you'd like to reflect on with us. You can email hello at whitehallsources.com. Please make sure you follow the podcast every single week. We are in your feed with analysis of what is going on from Kirsty and from a wonderful, brilliant range of guests who can really get in behind it and help us understand how politics actually works. Uh, so press follow. It's complete.
completely free and you can stick around and be part of the podcast from here on out. And I should just say that dropping into your feed tomorrow will be a bit of a retrospective on the Labour Party and their take, their stance on the Middle East after Sir Keir Starmer's big sort of set piece speech earlier this week to try to sort of carve out clarity on the Labour Party line. Uh, We'll reflect on that in a special episode with you in your feed tomorrow. But we do today want to start with the COVID inquiry, uh, which has been taking place in one of the most soulless, joyless rooms I've ever witnessed on the television ever. And I have to say, Kirsty, I found myself yesterday on Tuesday, I was watching it for a lot of the day while doing other things, but it was on. And that was because two former top advisors in number 10 were giving evidence. Um, One of them was Dominic Cummings. The other was Lee Kane. These guys were, I mean, they were crucial, really, weren't they, to the to the functioning, the running of government during the pandemic? Um, and they are theatrical. They are box office, aren't they? They, they, they got our attention. Uh, they certainly did. I, like uh, you and probably every other political geek in Britain, uh, was working with it on uh, in the background, as it were. And at points, I literally uh, couldn't stop watching it. Um now, uh, so who did they have giving evidence yesterday? It was Lee Kane, who was the former number 10 director of communications, uh, and Dominic Cummings, who was uh, uh, at the time of COVID, uh, the senior sort of special advisor um, to Boris Johnson in number 10. Um, now, both of these people are big characters, uh, and in some ways, it didn't disappoint. Uh, both in terms of some of the marmalade dropping moments, uh, particularly around mm. some of the language that was being used, but some of the revelations. So can I just run through what I think uh, were the most important points for me from yesterday uh, in terms of facts and actually culture? Uh, I think what what Lee Kane's evidence brought out quite clearly at the start of the Uh, pandemic was that there was no real plan. There was no detailed plan. There was an overarching kind of umbrella strategy. Uh, I think what uh, Dominic Cummings' evidence then brought out quite starkly was that overall uh, uh, overarching strategy was incorrect uh, for what was actually happening on the ground. Um, uh, I think there was a widespread agreement Uh, both in terms of the people that gave evidence yesterday and some of the written evidence we've seen, that there was very little uh, respect for the Prime Minister and very little belief that he was the right man for the job. Lee Kane said he lacked the right skill set for that particular crisis. Um, uh, But then, interestingly, the other thing that came out was, you know, in, in some ways is as important... I don't think it's a huge surprise to anyone, but to have, you know, what you always thought from the outside looking in was a level of dysfunctionality in number 10. To see it so stark and so the breadth and depth of it, I was just blown away by the lack of respect everybody has for everybody else. No one has respect for the Prime Minister. Uh, the criticism of, of him was the, pretty much the same from from everybody, whether whether they were offset, if you like, and their written evidence was being relayed, or whether they were witnesses at the time. Which was that you know he oscillated wildly between uh, strategies. He would bear the imprint of the last person he'd spoken to. All that um, uh, you know, Dom Cummings, who was widely 
Uh, you know, everybody described him as the trolley, shopping trolley, because he sort of veered all mm. over the place. Uh, there was no respect for for individuals within the team. There was a lot of kind of, you know, uh, I think it was Lee Kane that said, and it's a very important point, which we'll probably go on to discuss a lot more in depth. You know, it was a very kind of toxic, macho, you know, who shouts loudest. There was no proper structure in terms of, uh, access to the Prime Minister meetings and how they were held and who was in the room, which, again, we'll discuss how vitally important that is. Um, and there was no respect for the seriousness of the situation. You know, I think the thing that, that most blew me away about this uh, is brought home in some of the flippant comments that the Prime Minister wrote about when he was musing about whether, you know, it was probably better to just let three million over 80s, you know, take their chances with the disease and it was nature's way, if you like, um, and let young people, uh, uh, you know, young people sort of continue to, to, to move around and, and, and live in society while old, old people were the expense of that. Um, and bear in mind, I, I learned from uh, Chris Mason, uh, who we heart very much. Um, Chris Mason. Uh, we, we do, we heart him. Um, that actually what none of us see in that soulless room is that alongside uh you know the judge and and the and the cases and the and the solicitors and what have you and those giving evidence are the bereaved relatives of some of the victims and so to sit and hear stuff like that you know it's nature's way and to hear a group of people who should be rising to an occasion who are mm. you know more involved in in you know probably one of the truest things Boris has ever actually said which was you know what was it, a, a disgusting orgy of narcissism to see how you know how incredibly short they fell from the occasion uh, i think must be um, uh, just heartbreaking for them. Um, and one final thought before I uh, draw breath, you know, for a bunch of people who think they're really smart, how stupid are they? You know, everybody could tell that this was going to be, you know, a huge monumental, you know, uh, unprecedented event. To write down on paper the sorts of things that, you know, that they were writing down, with all the inherent risks that that you know that that betrays to them, I, I, I'm just I'm stunned. Mm. I'm stunned by the language. Mm. I'm stunned by the sorts of things that people wrote down. Writing diaries, which you know uh, record events, is one thing, but to refer to people, you know, on text and what have you, and to muse casually about whether you should let three million elderly people die. Uh, and to have that written down so it can be you know, taken down and used against you, as it were, are just jaw-dropping, jaw-droppingly stupid. Yeah, jaw-dropping indeed. Uh, right, lots to discuss then in terms of what we've learned at the COVID inquiry this week. Just on the lack of respect point and the language that you mentioned, I just want to play a sort of 30-second mega mix, if you like, of the inquiry lawyer Hugo Keith KC, who was reading out some of Dominic Cummings' messages and I have gone to town with the swear bleep, so don't worry, but this just gives you an idea of the sort of, well, lack of respect that you talk about. You called ministers useless f pigs, morons, Do you think you contributed to a lack of effectiveness on the part of ministers? No, I think I was reflecting a widespread view. He's back to Jaws mode, Cabinet office is terrifyingly You're happy to have useless pigs in charge. I also must stress, I think... Leaving Hancock in post is a big mistake. We face going into autumn crisis with the 
still in charge of the NHS will be back around that cabinet table with him and Stephen's bull again in September. So that gives you a bit of an idea of the sort of messages that were being sent. Now, just on some of the other themes, I want to welcome our guest uh, to the podcast, Alex Thomas from the Institute for Government, Programme Director there, and former Principal Private Secretary to the Head of the Civil Service. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Hi there, thanks for having me. Not at all. It's great to have you there. And Alex, just by way of sort of picking up on what Kirsty's mentioned, I want to play another bit of Dominic Cummings here, uh, talking really about the government at the time, how it worked or indeed how it didn't work. Like all dysfunctional systems, it was a mix of a lot of the wrong people in the wrong job, uh, um, decades of accumulated power, no real scrutiny and insight, a culture of um, constantly classifying everything to uh, hide mistakes and um, hide scrutiny. Uh, Management was bad, incredibly bloated with so many senior figures that that they themselves, as Helen McNamara's statement makes clear, the senior people themselves didn't know who, who on earth was in charge. I mean, does he have a point in any of that, Alex, do you think, from from your own experience, from kind of looking in and watching now, this sort of idea, wrong people, wrong jobs, lack of scrutiny, people not knowing who's in charge even? I think he does have a point, but I think it it changed a bit over the course of the pandemic. I should just say, by the way, I was also, if I sound a bit cautious in some of the things I say, I was an expert witness to the inquiry for this phase of it. So I gave evidence a couple of weeks ago. Um, I didn't notice all this hoopla um, uh, back then, you know. But, um, uh, you, you're clearly not as sweary, Alex. You need to use more swear words in your WhatsApps. That's the key. Yeah, I, well, perhaps perhaps that's not the lesson we should learn from this stuff. No, this, exactly. This whole process. Um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, so I have, to, I have to be a little bit cautious in what I say, but, but you know, sure. happy to talk about that experience as well well because it's a you know mm. it's a fascinating process to to have gone through um uh just i mean on the language when i when i gave evidence i said i did say that it was appalling but i also tried to you know, from my experience contextualize it a little bit around people in teams under immense pressure this is very very difficult i have to say particularly after yesterday but some of the stuff that has come out over the course of the week subsequent to my uh evidence i mean it's just the language is grotesque. This is not people working under high pressure. This is a performance of aggression and bullying. And uh, uh, so, I mean, that has changed and gone up a notch. And I think there are things that are more fundamental to how government worked than some of the language and the attitudes, but it it really did shock me, um, uh, particularly some of the language yesterday. Um, But on the, on the, on the point you asked, I think, I think Dominic Cummings, is right about a lot of it and you know, through the work of the Institute for Government but also just talking to people I know and collecting the evidence for this inquiry very few people had a good word to say about the organisation of the centre of government in that first phase of the inquiry and uh, there were some classic uh, organisational failures, very senior people piling in uh, lots of people involved in something but no coherent organization and a sense of chaos and confusion i think one of the things we've learned though um over the course of this module of the inquiry is how um there are two quite distinct phases that provide an interesting insight into the strengths and failures of the civil service and the cabinet office and everything else and the prime minister and his advisors and that first phase february march 2020 chaos, confusion, to some extent understandable. I think there are all sorts of ways the government could have been better prepared, but this was a Mm. rapidly changing, rapidly emerging situation. A prime minister who 
was sometimes engaged, sometimes disengaged, um, uh, and a system under immense strain with a confusing and novel uh, virus. Uh, and there are things that you can learn from that, um, uh, but uh, you know, there's an element, you know, language and culture aside, of uh, understanding of why government was chaotic at that time. But then the second phase in 2020, through the late summer and autumn and into the winter, I think is quite diff- different because by then, more or less, again, there are things, still things you can critique, but more or less, the centre of government had got its acting gear and they created this thing called the COVID task force that was servicing two quite clear cabinet committees, uh, COVID-S, they called it, strategy and COVID-O um, operations. And that was a coherent means of synthesising all the evidence and taking decisions. The problem in that phase, it is clear, was a prime minister who was unable to take a consistent decision. And I think that exposes the um, failure of Boris Johnson uh, as you know, the executive leader of this organisation in a really illustrative and interesting uh, way. So lots to criticise in that first phase. I think the second phase is much more about the personal qualities of the Prime Minister as well as everything else that was going on. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, Alex, you've just anticipated beautifully actually my, my question, <laughs> um, uh, which is, you know, one of the themes in terms of media is how much of this is, you know, about whether we can really learn lessons, um, uh, given that so much of this was about the personalities of people who happened to be in charge when the music stopped, as it were. Um, uh, and also, you know, whether this is a trial of Boris Johnson. And, and one of the things that, you know, hasn't been brought out yet for me in the inquiry or really sort of been exposed overall, maybe because just the dysfunctionality of Number 10 uh, just is such box office that it kind of drowns out everything else. I have a certain amount of sympathy with the start of this. You know, uh, uh, you know, I have a certain amount of sympathy. We, you know, there's a lack of data. You know, I remember walking around an exhibition with my friend uh, in February, going, "Oh, you know, this is just another, you know, one of these flash in the pan kind of remember swine flu, remember this, remember, you know, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Yeah. You know. Um, the prime minister wasn't alone in thinking that this might be um, a bit of, you know, a, li- a little bit of hoopla, um, media hoopla uh, in February. So I have some sympathy with that. Where I really lose sympathy and where it becomes interestingly much more about politics over science or, or lack of science because, you know, the, there wasn't the data and what have you, um, is that decision, that, that decision about when you lock down in autumn. Now, a significant amount of the deaths... Uh, happened in that second wave, happened in autumn, at which point we had the data, we had the test and trace, you know, we had the evidential base, we had the right systems and structure in place. And then that decision becomes a political, much more of a political decision about whether you want to lock down. And it becomes much more about the instincts of the of the prime minister and where he's waiting uh, his legacy, if you like, whether it's weighted more on, um, uh, you know, what the Daily Telegraph will write about him, uh, as opposed to, to what this, you know, to what the science is. Um, and have we, has that not been teased out yet, just because of the way that the inquiry is set up, or uh, do you think the, because the dysfunctionality was so profound at the start, it's overshadowing, you know, what for many people was 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 the much more problematic part of of the government's handling of this 
Yeah, I think it's a really good point. But I think I think it's overshadowing rather than not coming out at all. Um, mm. In that, um, I mean, the, the the evidence that we've had allowed me to make that point I made about the contrast between uh, spring 2020 and autumn, winter 2020. So I think it is there, but has perhaps, to the point you pick up on, been less explicitly drawn out. And I also, I mean, this is interesting to the government geeks like like us. I'm going to sound a bit like the civil servant that I used to be, but <laughs> I think it's important to remember that it would have been a legitimate decision for the government to decide not to lock down that autumn. Um, I mean, my personal view, the wrong decision, but um, that would have been legitimate. There's nothing inherently wrong with a prime minister that is saying uh, – my judgment of the balance of risks is that we should stay open or that we should you know, keep schools open, come what may or whatever. Um, uh, what, what, what is so clear from this evidence is it wasn't that it was one day, uh, lockdown, one day, open up the next day, do something different. And it was a paralysis of decision-making rather than a conscious decision based on evidence and a kind of calm judgment about the, about the facts um, uh, that created that sense of paralysis and frustration. And we can remember at the time, you know, we were all on social media or following this through the media. And it, and it, it wasn't, um, you know, this was a really live debate. It wasn't like mm. in, the, in the autumn, I mean, it wasn't like this is a sort of uh, surprise and the government had, you know, was, was operating, was, was, was flying blind. But to the other, I mean, another thing you said, maybe another quick point, which is, um, I do think it's important to have the what you know have the WhatsApps out there, and it speaks to the culture and um, you know to establish beyond doubt that everybody working with Prime Minister Boris Johnson thought that he was not able to do this job in these circumstances. And also, by the way, think of everything else that was going on at the time. This wasn't just a this wasn't just a COVID issue. Uh, you know, mm. we're, we're not talking about Brexit and levelling up and all the other things. But there was a question about the effectiveness of good operation of, of the operation of government on all these other fields. But um, uh, what I think it would be helpful to, for the inquiry to draw out as we c continue is not just these WhatsApps, but the actual fora for decision making. What, what evidence was in front of ministers in those cabinet committees? I mean, I haven't seen I've seen evidence of quite a lot of really odd government behaviour. I haven't seen that the cabinet never endorsed a decision or that we were decided to lock down on some kind of constitutionally illegitimate premise. So what was going on in the, those cabinet committees? In a way, the most one of the more shocking things from this week for us at the IFG was was not Dominic Cummings or Lee Kane, but was Martin Reynolds, the Prime Minister's former Principal Private Secretary, saying that he WhatsApped Boris Johnson um, submissions, the, the bits of paper on which ministers take decisions, um, rather than sending them to him by email or printing them out and him having a kind of proper consideration. If the Prime Minister really was taking decisions based on a kind of 50-word WhatsApp rather than a 500 or 1,000 or 2,000-word proper consideration of, the, th of the, the facts and then those decisions weren't going through the proper cabinet committees, then that really that is, is, a, is a scandal of governance as well as all the other problems that we've seen. That's, that's a really fascinating point. And I would add to that, you know, there's, there's a kind of, there's a superficiality about WhatsApp, isn't there? You kind of, you're kind of glancing at it through the day. You know, you're not sitting down to consider it perhaps all that thoroughly. It's an ongoing conversation with multiple people in multiple different 
chats and stuff. It's it's not like having a meeting. It's not like sitting around and deliberately focusing on things, which is something that I've been kind of pondering um, this week. The other the other question I have, Alex, is you know the whole thing here is about learning lessons. What can be you know what can be done to sort of change the way this works. But but if a lot of this is about Boris Johnson's character and how he handled or mishandled it, what is the lesson in that? Because how does the government machine or mechanism, how should it accommodate for that if it's just a, a failure of character? I think this is really hard. And it's a really good question. Yeah. Um, I think there are, there are some lessons for the government machine. And, you know, this is the good Institute for Government type you know, question. As I said, uh, it took a few months longer to get this properly synthesising cabinet secretariat together that was able to... Uh, advise the prime minister and other ministers on all the trade-offs and that kind of thing. So there, there are there are lessons like that. You know that should have been much quicker in in coming together. And there are lessons about how the economic evidence was played into the scientific evidence was played into the social policy evidence and all of that stuff. So there's lots of good stuff that can be learnt there. But I, the, the, in the end, your question is it's a political question, and I don't think there's an answer other than. Political parties, members of parliament, members of political parties, the general public need to weigh competence more heavily than they have done uh, in the selection of the people who are leading us. And that's, you know, that's dangerous territory for, a, you know, for, for, for this sort of conversation, yeah. because you do get into the, the kind of deep politics of it. And in the end, mm -hmm. it is up to the political party and members of parliament to uh, say who they have confidence in as prime minister. And it's up to the electorate to vote for those political parties um, in a general election. And if that's who they choose, we're seeing the limits of what even a highly effective system could do in a system like the UK's that is you know, highly dependent on the character, style, competence of the prime minister. Now, we could try and redesign a whole other system that is you know ruled by the bureaucrats or something much, you know, much tighter field of operation for a prime minister or whatever. I don't actually think that would be better. I think we'd be losing the essential nature of democracy. Hundreds of years of progress in uh, in in um, you know, democracy is, is you know, that old cliche about being the worst system apart from everything else. You know, in the end, that's what responsive government means. So I I, I don't think that is an answer to which there's a, a, a an easy or neat question. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
Oh, hello. Well, you thought you'd got rid of me, didn't you? Well, here I am in the break as well. You are welcome. Here at Whitehall Sources, we are always enthusiastic about rigorous journalism. So we have been tapping up our very special sources to find out more about The Resident, which says it has excellent rooms in exceptional locations, providing heartfelt hospitality. I'm pleased to say their story checks out, actually. Here's one of our sources, Bossman56, who says, Just spent three days at the resident Covent Garden. Room was excellent, so were the staff. The room and the hotel, clean and tidy. Staff were friendly and very efficient. We'll be going back soon. And in the interest of double sourcing, it's just what we have to do as rigorous journalists. How about this from Gufton, which I assume must be a codename. The best hotel I've stayed at in London. The customer service was unsurpassed from the moment I walked in the door. It actually all makes us very proud to be supported by The Resident on Whitehall Sources. And you can join The Resident online. Go to residenthotels.com. And if you all do that, they'll actually just be very pleased with us. So go to residenthotels.com. Thank you. I wonder if part of it as well as the people around the Prime Minister. So you, you made reference, Kirsty, earlier to the uh, the wrong people in the wrong jobs was kind of a theme from yesterday. And I wonder if, you know, we, if we dig into that, these are people who wanted to really radically change the way the civil service interacted with advisors and how the civil service kind of bit of government um, operated. That was a Dominic Cummings thing. It has been for years, hasn't it? He's wanted to basically rip that apart. So I wonder if actually there was a kind of a breakdown in that, a kind of lack of respect for the system as it is. And so the system couldn't cope because it was being kind of trampled all over. Is that is that a fair way to put it, do you think, Kirsty? Uh, yeah. I mean, on on uh, the lack of respect, Barbie, I would also throw uh, that particular government, that particular administration's general lack of respect for the civil service before this came into being. Now, mm. I completely agree with Alex. What's happened is, uh, you know, if if you ask me, my shorthand version of what is the civil service for, I always say, only partly joking, it's to protect the public from the worst excesses of politicians, right? Um, Yes, it can be overly bureaucratic. Yes, it can be overly slow. But it has this uh, just innate kind of checks and balances function that I just don't think it, you know, it frustrates politicians. It's it's But it's kind of supposed to. Uh, It's -hmm. supposed to be there to challenge. Um, and actually, you know, Alex is right. What's happened over the course of of that uh, over the pandemic is that you know the systems have been put into place. They are the right systems. It has taken too long for the pace of the virus, but you know that is the nature of government, and that is how it how it moves. And Helen McNamara is giving evidence today. She was the uh, second most senior civil servant uh, at the time. Uh, and I just pulled down a piece uh, of evidence that you know that, that's already uh, been submitted from her. And during the course of this, presumably when somebody at number ten was going, "Why is this so dysfunctional? Why does nothing work?" She did a very quick kind of focus group of people, and it beautifully highlights both the structural problems and the cultural problems. And if you just bear with me for a minute, these are things sure. that are being said by people in the cabinet office and number ten. You know, it all speaks to the same piece. Uh, and it points to a very clear way how some some of uh, the right structures can mitigate some 
of the problems of poor leadership. So there are far too many meetings. They are poorly structured and prepared. This is a very interesting point from Helen. There isn't enough, well, from the, the people that took part in this focus group, there isn't enough time to prepare good papers. So there's this pressure presumably coming from the top of hurry up, hurry up, we need this. And some things just take the time they take. Um mm-hmm. To be good, there are too many people in the room who aren't disciplined about their contributions. So I suspect there's a lot of people talking for the sake of talking rather than listening to experts. Decisions are never final. That's obviously something that's really been played out. My favourite, which pretty much sums up the kind of sense of the of the start of the pandemic, we have a hundred actions and no plan. Um, and then to the culture, no one listens to anyone else. Views are ignored. Bad behaviours from senior leaders are tolerated. Too much politics, small p, uh, focus on grip at the expense of collective leadership. Now, um, if you'd asked me before I worked in government, you know, what makes a good leader? I might have said a whole bunch of things, right? What I, uh, what I say now, um, having worked uh, on the other side, The single most important thing you need in a leader is the ability to take a decision for good or for ill. And you absolutely need to listen to all the evidence, take all the evidence, hear the people in a room, but then take a decision. The whole structure of our government is so centralised at number 10 uh, or up to a departmental secretary of state that if they can't take a decision, the whole of government grinds to a halt behind it, right? And the thing that's always blown my mind about government is, you know, the, the funnel, <laughs> you know, he's got this great big swathe of, you know, of, of talent and views and submissions. They all funnel down to like the same one or two people. So if they're mm-hmm. slow or they don't want subs that are longer than two pages or they don't, you know, all of this kind of stuff, um, or they can't take a decision. The whole of government kind of grinds to a halt. So, and look, sometimes you can be too willing to take a decision. I think, you know, Liz Truss, <laughs> you know, Liz Truss is a great example of, you know, okay, take a decision, slow down. Uh, but, but the ability yeah. to take a decision, good or ill, is the most important thing about leadership. I think the second most important thing um, is about respect. There is no point having access to great minds, great expertise, if you don't respect it. Um, and I think the thing that, you know, made me want to shake Dom Cummings more than anything else and probably everybody else and hats off to Hugo Keith KC for some of the most brilliant passive aggressive questioning I've ever seen, uh, how to say nothing in the most polite way possible is it's everybody else's fault, but his, and he doesn't realize how much that aggressive, you know, you're an idiot and you're a, you know, bleep, bleep, swear word. When you, I mean, look, you know, politics is a sweary business, but there's a difference about, you know, swearing as a trope, if you like to emphasize, oh, this is, you know, this, this is, this pandemic is effing awful. Yeah. Yeah, Effing bad. There's a difference between that and swearing about people or to people. Right. And that's, that's where the kind of respect factor comes in. So if you've got no, respect for people you silence opinion in a room and the other sorry one more other really important point is diversity of opinion in the room so lee kane brought this out you know too often what we see at number 10 is a reflection of the leader 
So, you know, what we got at number 10 under Boris was a, you know, a, a very kind of macho, willy waving, testosterone fueled, shouts loudest in the room kind of culture, right? So, you know, the, the fish rots from the head, as it were. You know, you need to be able to build a team of complementary talents of people who you respect their opinions, even if they are different to you, and they need to be different to you. Liz Truss, again, was another classic example. You know, she built a cabinet that someone said wasn't so much a cabinet, but a protection racket. You've got to have diversity of opinion in the room. One of the tragedies of Dominic Cummings when it comes to government reform is that he was and is right about quite a lot of yeah. the problems with the civil service. He talks about diversity. He talks about the need to be more data literate. You know, I could go on and on and on about things on which Dominic Cummings, I think, is completely right. But his great project to reform government completely failed. Um, mm -hmm. And why did it completely fail? It's for those points that Kirsty was talking about. It was the antagonism and the failure to bring people along. One of the things I think that didn't come out of the inquiry yesterday was 2020 was also the year of the SHIT list um, when um, uh, <clears throat> Dominic Cummings and presumably Boris Johnson had made it very clear that there were permanent secretaries who they didn't rate, who they were going to sack. Um, and they were trying to intimidate the system into bending to their will. <clears throat> Now, a bit of that is, you know, as Kirsty implied, there's, there's often tensions between civil servants and politicians. But to do it in such a kind of performative way designed to intimidate, then put the whole system of government in an antagonistic position to what Dominic Cummings was trying to achieve. And so you had part of government that was antagonistic and, and stroppy, but then part of government that it seems was overpliant. And we saw that in some of the... Um, testimony from the officials most close to Boris Johnson, um, uh, seeing themselves just as, you know, the safest route is to be a kind of cipher between the prime minister and the system rather than to put yourself in, in harm's way. And I completely recognise that in a human level, but that is not a good operation of, of government. And then the final thing to say is just to, I agree with everything Kirsty said about number 10 and the importance of taking decisions. We can sometimes have too much of a focus on number 10 um, because it's the sexy bit. Um, it's really important that secretaries of state are replicating this in their departments and the permanent secretaries in individual government departments are doing the same thing because there are an awful lot of decisions that aren't the biggest and the hairiest and the most top level ones that are being made every day within government departments. So this is a sort of whole government insight rather than just looking behind the black door um, on Downing Street. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very good point, actually. I mean, I can think of a Secretary of State who um, was much beloved on a personal level by the, the civil servants in the department she worked in, um, you know, and she was respectful and bright and, uh, you know, everybody on, a, on, a, on an individual kind of moral level really liked her. But she was, you know, uh, she couldn't take a decision. And the whole of this department was sort of crunched up behind it going, you know, oh, my God, and like tearing their hair out with frustration because she couldn't take a decision. The one other thing I will say, um, and forgive me because this is a, a, a personal story which uh, segues slightly, but to make, a, to, to make a point, Alex is right. You know, Dom Cummings' uh, criticisms of some of the problems of the system are right. And for those of us that have worked in the system, it's really – easy to recognise that kind of frustration of, you know, how I'm pulling a lever and nothing's happening. <laughs> Who do I need to talk to? What lever do I need to pull to make things work? It's very, it's very frustrating, particularly for a politician. 
Um, but years and years ago, uh, when I worked in a department, um, and this was, I think, under Cam, well, it was under Cameron Osborne, um, and I used to listen to the spads get sort of routinely shouted at in that kind of comedy way where you hold the phone away from your ear and you can hear someone go, if this, if that, blah, 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 blah. Um, and uh, one of the spads I worked with was was a big fan of Don Cummings. And we'd read a, a, a blog he'd done about um, the problem with number 10. And he'd written, this is obviously, you know, I think at the time he was with Gove or before the time that Dominic Cummings was with Gove. And he wrote, number 10 is so dysfunctional that you half fancy you're going to open some secret door and find a group of secret ninjas who are really in control of, of government and running the country. <laughs> and, then he, and then he wrote, there are no ninjas, there is no door. And every time I'd walk in and the spads were getting a kind of, you know, or something, number 10 were asking for something ridiculous, we would just look at each other and go, there are no ninjas, there is no door. When I <laughs> when I left, I actually put this in a, you know, I got it sort of printed out and put in a frame for him. And that's right. You know, number 10 is, you know, sometimes, you know, you are scared by the fact that, you know, uh, there are no ninjas, there is no door. These people really are running the country uh, you know, be afraid, be very afraid. But but back to Alex's point, you know, populism comes at a price. You know, you need, you know, this, the amount of times I hear as a criticism that someone is dull or lacks charisma as a leader, I don't care. I want a leader who is smart, uh, who has integrity, you know, who can work through policies and take, you know, not necessarily what's the right option because quite often that's not, that's not an option, which is the least worst option available in a circumstance, but to take a decision uh, and to build a team, you know, uh, similarly. Um, it's been so good to to chew through these these things. Alex, if you've got a couple of minutes, it would be interesting to hear about your experience as a witness then to the COVID inquiry. I mean, I described the room as quite soulless and joyless. What was it like walking in there to to take your place and to, to be a part of this? Uh, yeah, um, the, the best... The, on a personal level, the best analogy I've come up with, and I've tested this with a couple of other people who've given evidence as well, and they agree, it's like being a patient before an operation. So you sort of go in, you're ushered in, and everyone's terribly nice to you. And they say, come on, oh, yes, Mr. Thomas, da, 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 da. and then they put you in a little side room, they make you a cup of tea, and, they, and you're, you feel very special because you're the sort of centre of attention for that that part of the inquiry but you also know that something slightly unpleasant is about to happen to you and then you go into this big uh big 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 room um uh so uh, the the kind of the vibe of it if you like is that sort of uh you're the center of attention but it feels slightly unnerving and slightly um exposing um uh it, the it is different being questioned, and I was obviously, you know, I wasn't a hostile witness in this in, in that way. I'm not sure that's quite the right phrase, but you know, I was an expert advisor in that sense. But even so, there is something quite different being cross-questioned by a KC on top of his game. Uh, so, because Hugo Keith did, did my session as well, and um, uh, uh, comparing that to being questioned by a parliamentarian in a select committee or in a meeting with your boss or with a minister or something else, there's there's something more forensic about it, and you feel you're being taken on a journey of argument rather than a sort of let's have an interesting discussion about some of these things. Um, uh, and you know, it's, a, it's a surprisingly big room. Um, I've heard Chris Mason, our beloved Chris Mason, making the point as well that there are 
representatives of um, uh, the relatives of victims and people with long COVID in the room. And so you're very conscious that you're sitting near people who've had a profound personal um, experience of this. And I, I certainly felt trying to be as sort of moderated in my language as I could be given the job I had to do. Uh, there's a temptation almost sometimes to be a bit more, um, a bit more emotional about it because, you know, for, for, for that fact among, among others, uh, uh, but in the end, it's a, it's a, it's a really important endeavor. And so you sort of, I'm very pleased to have done it, even if I didn't massively look forward to the process of, of doing it at the time, if that, if that makes yeah. sense. Of course, of course, understandably so. And you, you, I presume, were you discussing the kind of the, the mechanics of government? What was the what was the sort of flavour of the evidence that you were giving? Yes, yeah, so it was this module. It was um, uh, it was the um, the way the cabinet office was set up before and during the pandemic, uh, the development of the COVID task force, uh, the nature of ministerial and other decision making at the time, um, some of the decisions that were made around the devolved administrations, uh, the underpinning legislative basis i think we covered that we were going to anyway um so it was the kind of it was the context for um for this um uh, for this module and then how that kind of applied through the 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 the, the pandemic uh, and drawing out uh some of the evidence i mean there were various kind of whatsapps and, and others but also kind of um uh, evidence the helen mcnamara um review of the culture if you're interested in this stuff really is worth a read it's on the inquiry website the thing that kirsty didn't mention is there's a um, uh, there's an asterisk, uh, there's a footnote uh, when Helen uh, McNamara talks about um, uh, senior men talking over senior women and this being what, uh, talking over junior women and this being recognised as a problem. And there's an asterisk footnote that says, including by some of the senior men who were talking over the women, um, which was just sort of encapsulated the, uh, right. uh, uh, the lack of self-awareness amongst some of the uh, characters in, in, involved in this. I mean, it might be too early from an IFG point of view, but, you know, is there something uh, from a governor's point of view that the IFG is already kind of focused on and thinking actually, you know, if we were doing a lessons learned from this, this is these are the areas we would be focusing on? Yeah, so this is a chance to plug our live blog. So we're doing it's It's not like sort of every five minutes like the news websites, but we are doing a, um, uh, a summary. I'm sort of staying a bit out of it because of uh, uh, my experience, but... Um, uh, but we're doing a summary of, of the main things that are coming out of the inquiry and what we might learn about them and how the inquiry is going about it. But actually, this has been a it's been a core theme of Institute for Government work since the pandemic started. We've done reports on decision making. I did one in September 2020. Way back then, um, we've looked at the Treasury. We've looked at how science advice was used in a crisis. This is it's such a sort of uh, all encompassing insight into how government works or doesn't work. Um, so, yeah, uh, head to the IFG website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, for, for all your COVID inquiry needs. <laughs> Absolutely. Alex, thank you very much. It's been really, really fascinating speaking to you. Thank you for your time. No, thanks for having me. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk 
forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.